0: Section 4 American Crypto Policy. Crypto policy used to move at a glacial pace. Exchanges and hosted wallets have always been subject to oversight from dozens of global regulatory bodies, and token teams have operated under the watchful eye of securities regulators from day one. But things only kick in a high gear these past six months, especially in America. That's what happens when you cross $3 trillion in market capitalization, and crypto policy becomes an existential priority. This fall, the President's Working Group for Financial Markets, PWG, released a report on stablecoins that called for Congress to pass new, urgent legislation to fill regulatory gaps. Biden's infrastructure bill passed with its disastrous broker definition intact, not to mention an intrusive extension of the Bank Secrecy Act's Know Your Customer requirements that might create impossible individual compliance burdens. SEC Chair Gary Gensler claimed sweeping authority over stablecoins and reiterated his tough talk on enforcement and his belief that most crypto assets were unregistered securities. The U.S. isn't alone in its struggle to find balance in crafting effective crypto policy. As we discussed last chapter, China banned most domestic crypto activity to prevent disorderly expansion of capital. India grew more open-minded, then reverted back to open hostility. Israel proposed a dystopian financial reporting rule requiring citizens to report all assets over 61K. Crypto privacy equals felony. There are some thoughtful locales. Japan's financial services agency has created a division to tackle DeFi regulation. Portugal offers 0% capital gains tax treatment on crypto, doesn't tax foreign income, and has been recruiting crypto innovators. Within the U.S., cities like Miami and states like Wyoming have been building crypto safe havens. Most countries seem keen to advance their central bank digital currency initiatives, even as they look upon decentralized finance with skepticism. A predictable trend we'll cover in Chapter 5. But as we begin our deep dive on policy, we'll first map out the American battleground. 4.1. Setting the stage. The American battleground. We start this section with two quotes. First from Novo. This is an unbelievably fast-growing industry. It's growing 1.5x to 2x as fast as the internet in terms of adoption you'd be an idiot as a politician to say, oh, we don't want that around. A quote from TBI. The U.S. is either going to embrace crypto and win or ban crypto and disintegrate. I've heard crypto referred to in recent months as pre-political. That's a good thing given crypto's bipartisan appeal and global potential. But one of the more worrying trends I've seen these past few months has been the slow Republican embrace of crypto as a political football. I say that as someone who sits right of center on the political spectrum and also a guy who helped meme single-issue voter into existence over the summer during the furious battle over the infrastructure bill's disastrous broker language. The truth is, Republican regulators so far look to have been more sympathetic and reasonable when it comes to crypto. We've had across-the-board downgrades this year to many members of the executive-appointed Financial Stability Oversight Council and other congressional positions of authority. It wasn't an unexpected directional swing, but I definitely didn't have... Ted Cruz is our top Senate ally on my 2021 bingo card. Opportunism? Perhaps. That's politics, baby. Anyone smart knows it will play to be an ally in the Senate to an exponential growth industry in need. What we really need are more champions like Democratic Senator Ron Wyden because we clearly don't have many, any, friends within the Biden industry or the progressive wing of his party. Senator Elizabeth Warren is one of the most influential senators on financial services. She hates crypto. Other up-and-coming Democratic members are hostile, too. Perhaps we should be thankful we haven't seen more legislative action on the docket because it would be terrible. There really isn't a good reason for progressive animosity, either. This pro-crypto open letter to Elizabeth Warren from a young progressive highlights how important crypto could be to the Democratic agenda. Not only does crypto democratize access to financial services, encourage collectivist-owned, open alternatives to tech monopolies, and offer mobility to the historically disenfranchised, but its success could drive tax revenue and potentially fuel green investments. We need to win over these technological progressives quickly because losing America is not an option. U.S. policy will dictate whether we have a golden decade of growth like the 90s or whether other Western countries slowly follow our lead to create global dystopian CBDC hellscape. If you listen to Bayla predictions, things look pretty dark in the USA today and balkanization and national divorce seem possible, if not likely. Punk6529's thoughts are more aligned with mine. Let's fight and win the battle here while we can. In the remainder of this chapter, I'll lay out A, the key issues and players to watch in the U.S. policy fight, B, six substantive issues we need to confront head on stablecoin and banking risks, anti money laundering, tax evasion, investment fraud, and exchange oversight, C, two FUD issues which are bad technically but lack substance, securities rules and privacy issues, and D, where we can win smaller battles while we fight the multi-year war in DC. 4.2, setting the stage, real risks and self-regulation. In a battle with a superior fighting force, you at least need to maintain the moral high ground. Most of the real policy risks crypto presents are solvable, and we have a number of obvious opportunities to garner goodwill with policymakers and head off crises before they emerge. Exchange risks. User crypto funds aren't FDIC insured, Hacks, exchange outages, and identity theft are possible. On the other hand, if users control their own wallets and lose the keys, or send a fat-fingered transaction, they can lose their assets permanently. Hosted services should educate users on crypto risks and security best practices. Stablecoin slash lending risks. Our central bank high priest can't respond to crypto booms and busts with adjustable monetary policy or serve as a lender of last resort. This is a feature. But we should recognize that crypto does weaken monetary sovereignty in some areas, Argentina, and that trend will accelerate as assets like Bitcoin become units of account, El Salvador. The Fed will either lose control over the exploding crypto euro dollar system, Tether, or it will wise up and embrace projects like USDC and Paxos. Banking integration risks. Banking access for crypto companies continues to present a single point failure risk for the industry. On and off ramps to real world are arguably the only existential need the industry still has. We need more compliant, chartered crypto banks to prevent shutdown risks and individual de-platforming risks. AML Surveillance Risks Illicit activity accounts for just 0.34% of crypto transactions, lower than TradeFi. But the borderless and synonymous nature of crypto makes embargoes and blacklists difficult or impossible to enforce. This is bad narratively in a political realm driven by zeroism. Look at the costs we have incurred fighting the war on terror, war on drugs, and the war on COVID. We should continue to drive down illicit activity while pointing to blockchain's surveillability as a law enforcement godsend. Tax evasion risks. The government might come after you with guns if they find that you misreported your crypto trades or suspect you have unreported private transactions or believe that you transact individually with the wrong people. Most of the biggest tax compliance concerns center on information incompleteness and disorganization. That's when exchanges should accept tax reporting responsibilities on behalf of their users. Securities, fraud, risk. Crypto is risky and volatile. The fat early tail often makes money at the expense of the latecomers. That doesn't make crypto a quote-unquote Ponzi scheme. It makes it a bubble-producing tech paradigm subject to hype cycles like railroads or the internet. No bubble has ever crashed, then resurged 10x higher in a regular four-year cycle. The challenge we have is reducing information asymmetries. We should advocate for holding-based disclosures, community reporting standards, and a safe harbor. Protecting privacy. We might have to agree to disagree here and fight them on the beaches when it comes to transaction privacy. Peer-to-peer transaction reporting and disclosure requirements on self custodied assets are unconstitutional overreaches. Get a warrant or we'll see you in court. This list isn't exhaustive, but it covers the big issues in broad strokes. Before we get to them in depth, you'll also need to understand the players on both sides. Good news on that front, Uncle TBI spent time cosplaying in D.C. while you were flipping ape JPEGs this summer. You may make better life decisions, but at least I could bring you up to speed. Leave Congress aside for a minute and let's focus on the regulators who will be interpreting, enacting, and enforcing crypto policy for the next several years. 4.3. Setting the Stage FSOC, and SEC dominance. In the U.S., crypto is at the mercy of the Financial Services Oversight Council, or FSOC, and its 10 voting members. There's the Federal Reserve, or Fed, the Department of Treasury, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, FDIC, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, And a couple others that are less directly relevant to crypto fsoc or financial services oversight council is a byproduct of dodd frank responsible for identifying risks and emerging threats to the financial system that means it has the statutory authority to organize a policy response to emerging tech like crypto the committee is chaired by the treasury secretary and aims to ensure there are no blind spots in the u.s financial regulatory framework as the u.s makes up 30 percent of the world's financial markets FSOC's impact is effectively global. I'll get into how each regulator fits into our policy responses in the sections below, but first, a glimpse on where each regulator sits on crypto today to provide a sense of what lies ahead. The Fed. Jerome Powell's Fed hasn't been overly hostile to crypto, but they are net negative on it as a potential systemic risk and threat to their policy tools. Fed seems more likely to have strong opinions on stablecoins than cryptocurrencies more generally as they roll out their initial design scope for their CBDC, a white paper from the Boston Fed is imminent. Powell told Congress he wouldn't try to quote-unquote ban crypto. Thank God he was reappointed. Brainerd has been elevated in status, but would have been much worse. Treasury. Steven Mnuchin was no crypto ally, but Janet Yellen is worse, has a better aligned group of colleagues working with her and the FSOC. Her push for the crypto broker provisions during the infrastructure bill battle. Remember, they fought tooth and nail against the bipartisan amendments that were proposed, and clear interest in beefing up tax enforcement is bad. Her support of wealth taxes also makes future IRS disclosures on crypto holdings likely. SEC. Gary Gensler is an ambitious and highly competent political operative who's been clamoring for more authority to regulate crypto tokens and the exchanges that trade them. He's leaned into his, quote-unquote, Cop on the beat image and has embraced regulation via enforcement. He even won concessions to play a leading role in stablecoin regulation, convincing the administration's working group that these assets were equivalent to quote unquote stable value funds. Hester Pierce has thrown some haymakers to protect us from our protector, Goldman Gary. CFTC. We lost Crypto Dad Chris Giancarlo. He approved of Bitcoin futures. Then Heath Tarbert approved ETH futures. Then Brian Quintez, who at least went to A16Z's crypto lobby. New chair Rostin Benham was on Gensler's old CFTC team. None of the current commissioners are crypto-friendly and there's been no rush to fill vacant seats. DeFi enforcement action soon? OCC. Former chair Brian Brooks issued interpretive letters that clarified how regulated USD-PEG stablecoins could have their deposits custodied by banks and how banks could custody crypto assets. Today's acting comptroller, Michael Sue wanted to end these arrangements, which he calls banking as a service. The next OCC chair may be a literal communist, and we know Treasury is pushing to regulate stablecoin issuers as banks. CFPB The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was Elizabeth Warren's baby. Warren hates crypto and wants the CFPB to crack down on its abuses. New CFPB Chair Rohit Chopra called out stablecoins in particular as a key area of scrutiny for his team. FDIC. Chair Jelena McWilliams told an audience at Money 2020, we must be cognizant that our American values, culture, and influence face increasing competition from abroad, including from regulatory systems that focus intently on promoting technological innovation and taking the mantle from the United States. Thank you. Unfortunately, FDIC's role in crypto is minor compared to the other agencies. I only include Jelena to show that not all regulators are bad. Suffice to say, the Crypto Coalition in D.C. has its work cut out next year. 4.4. The Crypto Coalition There are basically five major crypto policy players in D.C. today. They are mostly corporate-backed with limited grassroots engagement outside of the aerial support Crypto Twitter can provide during major battles, e.g. the infrastructure bill. While none are perfect, they've all punched way above their weight this year and have gotten significantly stronger. Coin Center, OG think tank, Bitcoin-centric, cool merch and nerd prom, keep the team small intentionally. These are ones focused on education and advocacy versus corporate lobbying, and they tend to be focused on the big picture constitutional issues, privacy rights, code of speech, and why crypto is important and should be treated fairly. They pick their battles. Blockchain Association. Top trade association, backed by the major crypto startups, growing fast, big lobbying efforts more aggressive. They also have to balance member egos and alignment, a challenge with any trade association, but perhaps especially acute in crypto. Ripple is a member, so is Masari. Binance US became a member, but that led Coinbase to defect. Still, BA is the best in town and they got stronger this fall. See Kristen Smith, Chapter 2. The Crypto Council for Innovation. New trade association, spearheaded by Paradigm, elite backers but little infrastructure. They have plenty of capital, but there's a lot more to be done and not a whole lot of time to do it, which means CCI will likely be more influential as coordinating members versus an actual organization this cycle until they have an actual team in place. A16Z policy team. Massive headcount and top advisory talent, enormous financial resources, influential founders, and crypto fund GPs representing an extensive portfolio. Their we're going fast and driving the agenda approach is a necessary evil given the imminent threats we face. They propose an excellent starting point for Web3 policy. It's unclear if they're taken seriously in D.C. yet or if they're viewed as more of a West Coast novelty. But their success is arguably the most critical out of this group given their ability to move fast the Chamber of Digital Commerce. I like the Chamber. We've supported them in the past. They're one of the oldest advocacy groups in DC. They have a lot of great working groups and publish good research. I'm not privy to all of the inside baseball, but there is a rift between the Chamber and the rest of the policy groups above. I'll leave it at that. There are other groups worth monitoring as well, including the DeFi Education Fund and Fight for the Future. There are tools that keep sprouting up to help with policy engagement, connect to Congress, And we also need a grassroots individual member organization, a crypto NRA, to engage the base and ensure the populist voice of crypto is well represented. I have been vocal about this need and will personally help support grassroots efforts with the right leadership firepower. Masari will also invest in policy research. We're looking for a leader to lead our policy efforts. 4.5. Setting the Stage. Regulatory Jump Balls. Contrary to popular belief or political attack lines, crypto entrepreneurs and investors want smarter crypto policy. We simply don't want the tech regulated out of existence within the U.S. Don't get me wrong, crypto has likely benefited greatly from the lack of clarity and clear single regulator oversight rules to date. The exchanges will gripe that they spend inordinate amounts of money fulfilling requests for the Treasury, SEC, CFTC, OCC, DOJ, but that's the cost of doing business as a money transmitter in fintech generally, and the jump balls have usually tipped to their benefit as crypto has clearly thrived in the gray areas. That gray area will get more black and white next year, and we must be proactive about good policy while staying on message. In brief, the crypto agenda boils down to seven key issues. 1. Ensure financial stability with clear stablecoin rules and careful bank integration. 2. Set clear guidelines on KYC AML reporting while preserving privacy. 3. Clarify tax rules and set exchange reporting standards. 4. Create safe harbors for community-governed tokens. 5. Introduce DAOs as a new organizational structure. 6. Harmonize exchange oversight. And 7. Allow for state and city-level experimentation. Congress loves acronyms, so the SPECIAL Act could cover everything—stablecoins, privacy, exchange tax reporting, community-safe harbors, incorporated DAOs, American Web 3 Council local experimentation. Smart legislation may seem like a big ask from this gridlocked Congress, but ultimately— It's critically important for American economic competitiveness and national security. It would have bipartisan support, and it would net the government more tax revenue. Dumb policy, by contrast, would squander our early lead and push offshore a transformative tech ecosystem. In the next six sections, I'll outline areas where there tends to be philosophical alignment between crypto leaders and policymakers that some regulation is needed, but also extreme frustration that policymakers are not listening and instead proposing solutions which run counter to their actual policy goals. Don't miss your chance to own one of Masari's first NFTs from the Masari 2022 Theses Collection. Each unique piece of crypto art tells the story of the year behind us and the year ahead. You can check out the full collection designed by pop surrealist artist Jian on OpenSea. 4.6 Crypto Euro Dollars and Systemic Risks A quote from Satan. Crypto is the new shadow bank. It provides many of the same services but without consumer protections or financial stability that back up their traditional system. It's spinning straw into gold. The first is arguably the biggest issue we face the regulation of dollar-peg stablecoins, which presents a double whammy for policymakers. First, there is a concern that stablecoin issuers are helping to create a parallel digital dollar economy outside of modern financial surveillance systems. That is somewhat true. Crypto dollars are like digital cash. The banks custody the underlying dollar deposits, the ATMs, or in crypto, the exchanges, dispense the cash, and what happens with the cash afterwards is somewhat opaque. It can slush around the cash economy off the books, or someone can bring it back to the bank, which then tracks the deposit's return into the regulated, fully-surveillanced financial system. Cash monitoring is usually a FinCEN-IRS problem. Anti-money laundering and tax compliance falls under Treasury's purview. But, as stablecoins have grown, the Fed has also grown more uneasy about the potential systemic risks posed by their growth. As a $3 trillion asset class with $150 plus billion in stablecoins, $5 trillion in annualized on chain volume, and perhaps an order of magnitude more in reported on exchange stablecoin transactions, crypto is starting to route around regulated banking, which impacts policy. Stablecoins power highly speculative bank and dollar enabled markets, which offer rates that obliterate their Trade 5 partners and competitors. DeFi lenders and TradeFi lenders or commercial banks do play by different sets of rules and the banks don't think that's very fair. Banks have been preaching to regulators for years, first with fintechs and now with crypto, same activities, same risks, same regulations. Acting OCC chairman Xu's emphasis on holding synthetic banking providers to bank-like standards reflects that. Regulators worry DeFi run risks could ripple to deposit holding banks themselves. FDIC chair McWilliams stance is slightly different. She thinks entities issuing crypto dollars outside of the banking sector should be backed one to one to explicitly avoid run risks. But that's what makes crypto markets different today. Most stablecoin and lending activity has been done on a fully collateralized basis so far. The key then is auditing reserves and solvency. As I'll explain in chapter five, There is justifiable concern over the lending practices and reserves of stablecoin issuers, e.g. BlockFi's grayscale trust exposure. We should know which assets back Tether and USDC and Paxos, etc. And we should know about the solvency of major crypto lenders, whether they are public or private. Regulation that prioritizes reserve transparency is something we should have rallied around years ago, given it cauterizes the persistently negative tether headline risks without killing legitimate regulated stablecoins like USDC or Paxos. The alternative to reserve transparency is a crackdown so severe that it looks more like an outright ban on stablecoins. This is what Senator Warren seems to advocate for, what she calls quote-unquote, wildcat banking can more appropriately be seen as the byproduct of years of regulatory neglect and failure to connect crypto exchanges to banking services. Sure, we could pursue a central bank digital currency, but that approach will take time, and it is not without concerns of its own. In the meantime, we'll cede leadership over better, faster, cheaper payment tech to other countries while protecting old U.S. financial rails from competition and will exacerbate the current crypto-euro-dollars problem. Foreign banks already create euro-dollar balances for transactions that never involve onshore U.S. businesses or U.S. banks in the first place. Regulatory hostility could accelerate the growth of crypto-euro-dollars like Tether. Better to integrate crypto into the U.S. banking system directly. 4.7. Smart crypto banking integration. A quote from Lee Reiners former supervisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. These things are effectively treated by users as bank deposits, but unlike actual deposits, they are not insured by FDIC. And if account holders begin to have concerns that they cannot get their money out, they might try and trigger a bank run. The other issue crypto presents to policymakers are the potential systemic risks of bank runs. Bringing crypto exchanges under banking regulations may make more sense to policymakers than opening up crypto to existing banks. Stablecoins are powerful innovations that improve the interoperability, integration, and ultimately the export of the U.S. dollar. They are also getting systemically important in some markets. For instance, a run or crackdown on Tether could create dislocations in real markets like commercial paper, while USDT provides no clear value to the U.S. On the other hand, granting depository institution charters to fully reserve crypto banks would solve some major problems. These crypto banks would be eligible to apply for payment system access and FDIC insurance. They would offer the Fed better supervision of the crypto dollar markets, and they would limit how companies, foreign and domestic, could rent their access to banking. Conversely, bringing crypto to trade TradeFi balance sheets would likely be a horrible idea. Standard banking processes may prove too incompatible with crypto. Avanti CEO Caitlin Long pointed to some important structural differences in a recent comment letter to the Fed. How would the Fed handle a hard fork on blockchain with stablecoin deposits? How might banks account for intraday quote-unquote bank-run risks given crypto's volatility and real-time settlement versus collateral requirements and daily settlements? Is the Fed comfortable with crypto's lack of reversibility? No permitted failures to deliver, collateral substitution, etc. From the crypto industry standpoint, direct integration and oversight by banking regulators for stablecoin-issuing banks would also help mitigate one of our single point-of-failure risks, the concentration of real-world on-ramps and off-ramps. It's big business for whoever gets it right. Silvergate's book value has more than tripled since the start of the year from $300 million to over $1 billion in equity, while its stock has rallied 10x since last fall. I predict multiple new crypto banks, like Avanti, will become unicorns in 2022. 4.8. Crypto is bad for bad business. The whole crypto is for criminal shtick is categorically false, a myth perpetuated only by the ignorant and the willfully misleading. As mentioned earlier, illicit activity comprises just 0.34% of crypto transactions, according to chain analysis, lower than incidence of illicit activity in regulated financial services, where banks have been notoriously effective money launderers for cartels and ultra-rich tax evaders. At the same time, crypto exchanges continue to be one of the primary allies in the fight against criminal activity. Binance recently helped bring down a $500 million ransomware gang, Most hackers by now understand that there may be more money made in white hat hacking than black hat hacking. Those that don't quickly get a lesson in how the money is too hot to handle or launder, as we saw in a $610 million poly network hack this year. There seem to be weekly reminders that using crypto for nefarious purposes leaves an excellent paper trail for prosecutors to lock in a conviction. People who build products that aim to serve dark markets almost always get caught and go to jail. And law enforcement is only getting more resources and better tools. Treasury has asked for more funding to track and fight crypto crime. The DOJ has set up a national cryptocurrency enforcement team. If you're using crypto for illicit activity, you are more likely to get caught than you are using cash. One exception, and it's admittedly a challenge, is ransomware. It creates a ton of headline risk, it's a big problem, and the solutions aren't obvious. That said, crypto-powered ransomware will exist even if crypto were banned globally. Crypto would simply become a black market currency. In the meantime, this relatively small problem today is a call to action to make critical security upgrades across our corporate and government infrastructure. Crypto is not a panacea. Like any new open technology, criminals can use it too. That doesn't diminish its value, and it seems the State Department agrees. They are paying pseudonymous crypto crime whistleblowers in crypto. It's dangerous, but effective. Section 4.9. Tax Enforcement versus Tax Products Let's be real for a second. No one wants to pay more taxes than they have to. The tax code is complex enough, and crypto's decentralized tooling, lack of exchange reporting standards, and evolving financial models make it especially difficult to track and consolidate taxable income each year. I understand why we're in this mess with the Infrastructure Bill's broker language and how the Joint Committee on Taxation could have scored improved crypto tax compliance as a $28 billion pay-for even if they didn't show how they derived the numbers. Crypto accounting is a nightmare. Tax reporting doubly so. It's less likely that crypto investors are evading taxes so much as struggling to report clean data. For illustration, these are some issues you might have scrubbing data at one of the $10 billion plus exchanges. They are a disaster. The first issue, no on-chain transaction history for withdrawals 90-plus days in the past, making wallet identification for transfers and cost basis tracking nearly impossible. No transaction and trade history prior to 2020. No consolidated fills on orders, meaning each order can spit back hundreds of transactions that each require disclosure in a Form 8949 no short sales tracking, in current tax reporting software as these can break certain services' trade verification engines. That's to say nothing of the challenges that come from valuing airdrops or illiquid forks, writing off complex DeFi transaction costs, or explaining seniorage shares or fractional NFTs to the IRS. Oh, and the U.S. is seriously entertaining the idea of taxing unrealized gains. What do we think that would do to the illiquid crypto markets, aside from protect investors, of course. Crypto tax reporting leads to some Fourth Amendment concerns around unreasonable searches and seizures. But it's really the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, that should be cited in taxed audit defenses. I don't know a single crypto user who wouldn't be thrilled to have reliable tax reporting software that correctly categorizes income versus wallet transfers versus capital gains and tracks cost bases while identifying liabilities and potential tax losses. There's nothing that pisses off crypto taxpayers quite like being regularly defamed by the insider trading rats in D.C. while we pay, insert lots of digits, of dollars, hundreds of hours, and dozens of blood pressure points dealing with tax reporting each year. Taxbit isn't a $1.3 billion company because crypto users refuse to pay what they owe. It's a unicorn because it prevents people from going postal. I expect we'll see a wave of M&A in the crypto tax accounting space in 2022 as exchanges see the writing on the wall and make, frankly, much-needed compliance investments under the new tax reporting laws outlined in the broker provision. Unfortunately, I also think we'll see at least one also-ran crypto tax accounting firm break bad and sell to the U.S. government on a variable fee model that rewards them for hunting down potential tax shortfalls. I also predict we will once again see next to no clarity on dozens of crypto tax reporting issues from the IRS, but you already knew my confidence was low. The one thing we do know, this may be the last year to take advantage of crypto's wash sale loophole. Section 4.10 Dear Gary Gensler, Are you a partial fraud or a total fraud? I've gone after current SEC Chair Gary Gensler pretty aggressively this year on Twitter. I'm about to go even harder. I think he's a liar and a fraud, and I'm going to tell you why. Before I unload, I should reiterate that I believe strongly in the SEC's mission. Number one, protect investors, primarily against information asymmetries in the investing markets. Number two, ensure the financial markets operate fairly and efficiently. And number three, promote capital formation in the U.S. The same mission underpins what we do at Massari. We organize and curate crypto data at scale in an attempt to level the information playing field, highlight risks and opportunities in the space, and ultimately drive fully informed decisions in new investments, new integrations, new governance proposals, etc. In my 2017 launch post, I wrote about the need for a crypto Edgar and ICO self-regulation. Hester Pierce's Safe Harbor and its draft disclosures framework maps closely to what we've been collecting for years already from crypto communities. So yeah, I'm a fan of the mission, and I've been doing it full-time for as long as tokens have been a thing. This ruffles some feathers, but I'll say it again. I've personally been more effective at protecting investors from information asymmetries than the SEC has. If we're looking at the spirit of the law, Masari will continue to outperform the SEC in its core mandate. We don't disagree over the spirit of the securities laws, but rather their applicability to crypto. The SEC seems hell-bent on asserting its authority over the entirety of the crypto market, Web3 protocols, exchanges, the decentralized finance ecosystem, even stablecoin issuers. But before we give them that authority, we should look at the options we have for crypto oversight. There are three. Number one, allow crypto to blossom with little regulatory oversight. Number two, rigorously apply securities law to crypto and chill token innovation. Number three, Embrace a cooling-off period and safe harbor, and wait for a new, measured regulatory framework from Congress. Libertarians will prefer number one. The SEC chair seems to prefer number two. Pragmatists will like number three. No regulator is going to willingly cede authority they might otherwise claim, so number one is a non-starter. There's no political brownie points for abdication of leadership, and it's Congress's job to clarify where regulatory authority begins and ends. Still, with gridlock in Congress, a smart regulator might evaluate whether their current approaches are working. In the SEC's case, is regulation through enforcement actions effective, or are new tactics warranted? Let's look at what the SEC is working with. Gensler is overstretching his staff to the point they may strike, while crypto builders are leaving cushy 9-5s to to join the 24-7 crypto fray. Crypto is the clear enthusiasm upper hand because builders here feel their cause is just. Is the SEC deserving of respect when their policies favor Wall Street versus retail, or they block innovations that could help artists, gamers, musicians, and other creatives break free from the monopoly platforms that exploit them? The SEC's work itself is complex, expensive, and time-consuming. A thankless game of whack-a-mole given crypto's exploding size and complexity. When they pick fights, they can end up going against former senior colleagues who now make multiples of money playing for the other team. Imagine fighting your former chair in a high-stakes enforcement case. When they do win, the victories are pyrrhic. Their crown jewel settlement was a paltry $24 million slap on the wrist to Block One for its $4 billion continuous token sale of EOS in 2017, an event that literally leveraged promotional billboards in Times Square. The EOS token sellers kept the proceeds, then redeployed $10 billion EOS sales proceeds plus gains into a new private exchange. Token holders got access to a broken, depreciating network that the original developers were effectively forced to walk away from, lest their efforts make EOS, quote unquote, look like a security. Meanwhile, one privatized a historic wealth transfer. Does anyone on SEC staff feel good about that victory? Can they? Projects that ask permission from the SEC hit brick walls. SEC engagement either breaks products technically, racks up years and millions of dollars in legal expenses for non existent benefit, kills products before they launch, or gets held against the engaging party in court. No one in crypto trusts the SEC, nor should they. Others can't say that. I will. The SEC's expansive interpretation of securities laws as it pertains to crypto is not working, and it's embarrassing that Hester Pierce seems to be the only leader there who recognizes the need to take a different approach. Let's give Gary a little bit of time, you might say. It's only his first year on the job, and he's juggling a bunch of different priorities. He didn't bring the Ripple case, Jay Clayton did. He didn't stole all the Bitcoin ETF for eight years, he finally let one through. He didn't write the Dow report or settle the Block 1 case, and he certainly didn't author the Howey opinion. He's merely working with outdated tools because Congress hasn't yet addressed the crypto issue. Fair enough. Then let's look at his positions thus far. Crypto ETFs. I'll expound upon my feelings about the toxic Bitcoin ETFs in Chapter 5. For now, know that the SEC's eight-year delay on approval caused investors to miss 800x worth of appreciation in the underlying asset, a catastrophic failure of the SEC's capital formation mandate. That's not on Gensler, but here's what is. Prioritization of futures based ETFs that will incur five to ten percent in hidden annual costs in contract role that will benefit Wall Street versus the spot based ETFs modeled after the world's largest commodities fund, the SPDR Gold ETF. Why approve an exotic future structure versus the superior option with 80% lower fees and 40x the liquidity? Well, Gensler wants to kick liability over to the CFTC, who regulate the Bitcoin futures, and hold out until Congress grants him oversight authority on the crypto spot markets and their exchanges. It's hostage-taking, and it's also designed to slow institutional inflow to crypto as few mutual fund managers will choose to hold such a toxic, expensive, futures-based asset within their funds. Gensler is operating in bad faith when he denies this plain fact. The safe harbor. It's one thing to oppose Hester Pierce's safe harbor. It's another to feign ignorance and lie to Congress, which is what Gensler did in October when asked directly about the safe harbor from Representative Patrick McHenry. He evaded an answer with a sly bit of misdirection, watch for yourself, and McHenry nailed him on the follow-up. McHenry, have you reviewed the safe harbor bill? Gensler, I haven't reviewed your bill. McHenry, have you reviewed Commissioner Pierce's safe harbor? Gensler, we talk actively about a number of matters. McHenry, specifically, have you reviewed the safe harbor itself? Gensler, we've talked about her thoughts on the safe harbor. McHenry, Senator Selkis, the floor is yours. Senator Selkis, Chair Gensler, I don't care about water cooler run-ins with Commissioner Pierce. Answer the fucking question. Have you read the document itself? It's eight pages and addresses many of your concerns about information asymmetry and investor protections within the crypto market. Have you read it? Yes or no? I know I'm naive, but if you're in a position of authority and you want an industry to trust your intentions, you shouldn't lie to Congress about your knowledge of a critical, widely publicized alternative to your bumbling, ineffective 10-year strategy. No action relief and reg A plus registration. Three years ago, former SEC Commissioner Bill Hinman suggested that emerging crypto networks could become sufficiently decentralized as they scaled, such that exchange of their underlying assets might no longer represent securities transactions subject to public disclosure rules, even if the projects had previously launched via a token sale. If a safe harbor is unpalatable, perhaps the SEC could advise on paths to sufficient decentralization or at least expedite the Reg a process for bringing tokens to market. Don't hold your breath. Props shut down this August after a $21 million 2019 offering. We have not been able to develop Props tokens in ways that could lead to commercial success, and there is no reasonable prospect of that happening in the future, given the regulatory framework which makes it impossible to follow anything remotely like proper product development of launch, measure, iterate. It took Blockstack 2 million dollars and 2 years of legal work, but they at least survived the Reg A+ process themselves. They now sit at number 75 in market cap, though it's unclear any user has ever read their filings and their token is not tradable in the US. Its liquidity relies on overseas exchanges. What exactly does a Reg A+ offering get you? And Gensler wants new projects to keep registering this way and talking to the SEC? ATS Stonewalling Gensler's most dishonest position may relate to that now infamous Come in, talk to us, line to exchanges. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong even called the SEC's behavior sketchy and claimed the commission refused to meet with his company's leadership or provide any written clarity on its reasoning for blocking one of Coinbase's new lending products. The behavior is sketchy coinbase and the other exchanges have been trying to comply for years and several have even acquired broker deals it's the sec that kept their broker applications caught in limbo for years watch lawyer collins belton explain this shouldn't be surprising gensler himself has stated that it might be impossible to bring crypto exchanges into regulatory compliance and that the path forward might need to follow through the exchange incumbents should they even be allowed to register The world will go on without these 200 exchanges. Somebody else will fill this space. I know that might be a dramatic thing to say, but it would be maybe okay. The message, the damage is done, and only national securities exchanges should be able to trade crypto. It's flagrant. And because crypto pros aren't insane and we're notoriously difficult to gaslight, we don't trust this guy. We know exactly who he is. We also know from Ripple's court proceedings that invitations to engage with the SEC are being used as evidence against the proactive party. Gensler recently told the Securities Enforcement Forum, I've asked staff to cut back on meetings with entities that want to discuss arguments in their Wells submissions. Come in and talk with us. We'll use it against you and then resist clarifying discussions. Okay, Gary. Pierce, of course, called out the absurdity of the SEC's invitations to crypto entrepreneurs in the light of SEC's enforcement-centric approach, saying, sure, Poloniex could have tried to register as a securities exchange or, more likely, as a broker-dealer to operate an alternative trading system and waited, and waited, and waited some more. Given how slow we've been in determining how regulated entities can interact with crypto, market participants may understandably be surprised to see us come onto the scene now with our enforcement guns blazing and argue that Poloniex was not registered or operating under an exemption as it should have been. That's why she's the only leader at the SEC with a shred of crypto credibility. Anti-ETH pressure. SEC is also sneakily dialing up the anti-crypto pressure in less obvious ways. They've turned up the temperature on 40 Axe funds, the $30 trillion mutual funds in ETF industry, who have considered adding exposure to non-Bitcoin crypto securities, such as Grayscale's ETH-E. One fund manager told me his firm had gotten approval to hold ETH-E from a regional office of the SEC before the DC office politely called back a roster of lawyers a couple months later and let them know, actually, no, we haven't blessed any crypto securities outside of Bitcoin trusts. Several other fund lawyers confirm that the SEC has remained hostile to non-Bitcoin securities, which essentially calls into question Hinman's prior public comments on Ethereum. Even Bitcoin isn't viewed favorably. It was merely grandfathered in. Stable Value Coins most transparent power grab we've seen has to do with Gensler's push for oversight on the stablecoin market, which he got by cleverly rebranding stablecoins as stable value coins, a nod to SEC-regulated stable value funds. To be honest, I have less of a problem with this than his other positions. As discussed previously, it's probably better to resolve our banking integration challenges than continue to back stablecoins with commercial paper or less liquid products. American crypto versus China stonks I know whataboutism isn't great, fact based debate, but it should piss you off that Chinese companies trade freely on US securities exchanges while willfully skirting securities disclosures laws and American crypto innovators don't get the same latitude despite more good faith engagement the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, oversees audits of publicly traded companies and maintains a list of foreign companies that have refused SEC requests to audit their filings. Wouldn't you know it, 95% of the companies on their list have auditors based in either mainland China or Hong Kong. You know, small outfits like China Petroleum and Chemical, China Mobile, JD.com, and other $10 billion plus businesses, and billion dollar IPOs like Pinduo Duo, Neo, and Tencent Music. Gensler is giving those companies a three-year grace period to comply with PCAOB guidelines, but won't entertain a three-year crypto safe harbor. Are you fucking kidding me? Is the difference that Wall Street makes money from one group and not the other? Protecting who, exactly? Crypto is starting to highlight just how damaging the 80-year-old 40 Act and its outdated accredited investor rules are. These rules block users from receiving earned token rewards. They prevent companies from going public until most of their growth has been captured privately. Things like investment company ownership rules don't prevent fraud. They enable them. I've seen it myself. The income and wealth thresholds for accreditation are themselves exclusionary and racist. Surely, someone woke enough to insist on avoiding the title chairman while awkwardly insisting on referring to Satoshi Nakamoto as she would take interest in crypto's popularity with underserved communities and note their vote of no confidence in TradeFi, right? Underrepresented groups are indeed voting with their wallets. 13% of white investors have crypto exposure compared to 18% black. 21% Hispanic, and 23% Asian investors, and yet the SEC continues to work hard to stop them. The paternalism is especially breathtaking, given the fact that crypto has delivered the goods. It's the only asset class where retail has made more money and had more access than institutions at every step of the way. The sector has outperformed literally everything, It's the ultimate tool for protecting investors that need it most, the historically disenfranchised. That's a lot of evidence against Gensler, but liar and fraud are loaded terms that imply malice. Could it be that naivete is to blame versus bad faith? No, this is not a case of ineptitude or technical naivete. What makes Gensler so dangerous and grimy is his competence and his ambition. He's an elite performer who amassed a $120 million fortune from a successful career at Goldman Sachs. As a former CFTC chairman, he knows how DC's political machine works and how to burnish his resume, play hardball, and keep his name in the news. As a former MIT professor on crypto, he's more familiar with the tech than most others in DC policy circles. He's cunning and calculating. To hell with the SEC's mission. He's holding an entire emerging industry hostage, partially at the behest of Senator Warren, as he curries favor in his ascent towards Treasury Secretary. Look, I've dealt with a number of smart, talented, earnest, and well-intentioned professionals at the SEC. I won't name drop them here for reasons that are likely obvious now. I don't want to get them in trouble, but I do respect them, and in a perfect world would love to collaborate more closely on our shared missions. Gensler holds them back. He's a fraud. American investors and SEC staff deserve better. 4.11. Ripple versus the SEC versus Safe Harbors I am, how you say, not a Ripple fan. I've called the company the Jekyll and Hyde of crypto. Cool, real-time gross settlement and remittance tech, but shady MLM-level marketing and retail dump of its centralized stash of XRP. If you've been around for any length of time in crypto, you know that Ripple CEO Brad Garlinghouse and I do not exchange Christmas cards. But from the day the SEC's enforcement action against them dropped last fall, I've been rooting for them to prevail versus the SEC because the case feels dirty and it could set terrible precedent. We know from Ripple's court proceedings that despite three years of meetings with company executives, the SEC never informed Ripple or its partners that the commission believed the company's digital currency – XRP was a security until they initiated an enforcement action. That alone is damning. I'm not a lawyer, but I know that baiting a company to engage over three years and then initiating a lawsuit with no prior warning is not a good way to craft policy around an emerging market. Especially because, unlike many other crypto tokens, XRP has actually been legitimately used for cross-borders payments as a bona fide currency. In ICU XRP, a critical post I published three years before the SEC's enforcement action, and which would have protected investors from the 95% plus correction XRP had following my post, I outlined the issue, saying, XRP could pick up steam as a viable potential bridge currency it could find footing as a reserve asset held by institutions who trade certain currency pairs infrequently, e.g. Tier 2 banks outside of the correspondent banking system who wish to settle local currency transactions. XRP rewards could be used as incentives to sweeten the pot and lower the cost for early partners. How does Bank A in Africa settle a debt denominated in pesos if they do business infrequently with Bank B in Latin America? Usually, they go through another correspondent bank who uses a larger reserve currency to settle up. Multiple hops to get to the same transfer, with each intermediary in the process taking a cut of the action. XRP could streamline that. Early adopting banks could save money and win from being early to adopt XRP, and the network could gradually decentralize. Not likely, but it's possible. In the analysis, I didn't take issue with the company's use of XRP, but rather its selective disclosures around XRP sales, the lines it intentionally blurred during the promotion of its rising XRP volumes, which at the time were due to inflated-slash-faked volumes on overseas exchanges, and its regular insinuations that new liquidity and buyer interest was coming from institutions versus retail. It was sleazy marketing, and the company intentionally obfuscated, still does, all of its related party transactions and selling volumes associated with XRP. We followed the money and updated XRP's market cap accordingly, as we found insiders were selling billions of dollars per year in tokens that were otherwise already counted as part of assets circulating supply. This is the case for Safe Harbor in a nutshell. Had Ripple complied with ongoing reporting under Commissioner Pierce's draft proposal, this XRP supply asymmetry would have vanished. Section 3d Sufficient information for a third party to create a tool for verifying the transaction history of the token, e.g., the blockchain or distributed ledger. This would have ensured Ripple supported a freely available and forkable block explorer. 5. Prior token sales. The date of sale, number of tokens sold prior to filing a notice of reliance on the safe harbor, any limitations or restrictions on the transferability of tokens sold, and the type and amount of consideration received. This would have properly accounted for all of Ripple's historical sales, including lockups and discounts to business partners. Section 6B. The number of tokens or rights to tokens owned by each member of the initial development team and a description of any limitations or restrictions on the transferability of tokens held by such persons. This would have tracked Chris Larson's, Brad Garland House's, and Jed McCaleb's ongoing sales as well as those from the company's affiliated foundation. Section 9. Related Persons Transactions A description of any material transaction or any proposed material transaction in which the initial development team is a participant and in which any related person had or will have a direct or indirect material interest. The description should identify the nature of the transaction, the related person, the basis on which the person is a related person, and the approximate value of the amount involved in the transaction. Ditto. Under a safe harbor, Ripple would have had three years to figure out a distribution and decentralization strategy. That would have been pro-growth, pro-innovation policy. And the company either would have cleaned up its ongoing reporting, or Ripple and its executives would have faced an enforcement action, not for securities registration violations, but for fraud. The policy goal for safe harbor should be to weed out the fraudsters and con artists via opt-in transparency. Keep those involved in crypto who have earnest and laudable objectives, help foster safe innovation during the bootstrapping phase, encourage networks with tokens to decentralize and pursue big ideas without tripping laws designed to protect investors. And most importantly, evolve the open standards much faster than would otherwise be possible with 80-year-old securities laws from the pre-computer era. I predict that the SEC will continue to be a drag on American crypto companies. Things will get worse before they get better, and Gensler will continue to ignore Pierce's safe harbor proposal so long as his master, Senator Warren, tells him to. Section 4.12, The Battle for Privacy It's sad, but our digital privacy rights are an afterthought to policymakers. They take it as a given that they will be able to snoop on our digital lives without limits under the banner of national security and catching bad guys and collecting taxes. worst parts of the infrastructure bill, those being the expansive broker language and the 60-50-I reporting provision, put the industry in an especially precarious position, probably violating both First and Fourth Amendment rights, and will be challenged in court. The broker language in the infrastructure bill is dangerously ambiguous. It could be applied to capture individuals who write code, validators who process transactions, and active crypto governance participants. Language was ostensibly written to ensure DeFi transactions could be monitored and taxable events reported to the IRS. But with Treasury seriously considering a wealth tax, the ambiguity seems more intentional. Again, recall that Treasury fought against the amendments the crypto coalition proposed as a fix. The other big battle, of course, is with 6050-I, which usually obligates businesses to file reports including names and social security numbers whenever they receive more than $10,000 in cash from a counterparty. The infrastructure bill updated 6050-I to include crypto reporting. According to the Proof of Stake Alliance, who initially caught the provision, this new rule would go beyond the Bank Secrecy Act by deputizing Americans to collect and report information on their fellow citizens the government itself wouldn't be able to access without a warrant. As Coin Center explains, the Bank Secrecy Act's reporting requirement is itself barely constitutional, but only because quote-unquote, banks are a third party to the transactions of their customers. Bank users willingly hand transaction information over to a bank as a condition of using banking services, and banks retain that information for legitimate business purposes. This is the essence of the so-called third-party doctrine, which obviates the otherwise applicable Fourth Amendment warrant requirement. In a peer-to-peer transaction, there is no third party. Yet under the new 6050i language, Alice and Bob could exchange Bitcoin and ETH and be subject to extensive reporting on each other. extreme interpretation of 6050i in those cases would be that non-compliance could lead to felony charge and up to five years in prison. That would effectively ban intermediary list transactions, as it would make compliance in certain markets, NFT art sales, functionally impossible. Does that make us safe from the terrorists yet, Daddy? Both provisions are ripe for constitutional challenges if they aren't amended outright. Section 4.13, Incorporating DAOs. The most clever policy proposal I've seen this year came from A16Z. In their presentations to lawmakers and regulators, they start with the why behind Web 3. User ownership promotes financial inclusion by making people owners and democratic voters in the platforms they use. It creates a pathway to open up big tech companies to competition, and it ensures the future of the Internet will be open and free from corporate or authoritarian crackdowns. It resonates. It also helps us push the focus beyond DeFi and cryptocurrencies, capturing things like non-fungible tokens, internet connectivity, and data storage networks, the future of the internet itself. But A16Z also does something non-obvious and important. They remove the emphasis on tokens and place it where it belongs, on DAOs, as a new legal structure. Of course, trillion dollar questions for crypto are how effectively can we decentralize and how well can we govern the open Internet? Going back to the Howey Securities test, an investment into a common enterprise with the expectation of profits based on efforts of others, this is the very best way to limit jurisdictional overreach by the SEC and ensure tokenized networks can operate legally in the U.S. Cleanly defining DAOs as a new corporate primitive would serve the dual purpose of clarifying A, what constitutes a common enterprise and how to interpret the efforts of others in that enterprise, and B, these legal structures can streamline global tax compliance. There are pretty obvious differences between companies and DAOs, and it starts with their fluid governance and legal structures, not their tokens. This is the right path forward, but it also begs another question. If commodities have the CFTC and currency has the OCC and securities have the SEC, won't tokens still require a regulator? Probably. Section 4.14. The American Web 3 Council. Beyond stablecoin regulation, which should probably be handled by some combination of the OCC and FDIC, not SEC, crypto is large enough and transformative enough that it warrants its own regulator as well as a self-regulatory body that might oversee crypto custodians and exchanges. Ironically, that regulator could look something like a combination of the OCC and FSOC. Most of that regulator's focus might be on the entities like Coinbase and Kraken and Anchorage and BlockFi that handle custody crypto for customers. But it could also help as a coordinating body with other agencies, break jurisdictional ties, and slam the door on attempted power grabs. The American Web3 Council could run point on implementing things like Hester Pierce's safe harbor, handing fraud in cases of bona fide securities offerings over to the SEC. It could work with the CFTC on oversight of DeFi market makers and rules for the Perpetuals market. It could work with the IRS on tax reporting standards to fix crypto's 1099 problem. It could work with the IRS and others to create new taxable legal structure for DAOs. Most importantly, it could get ahead of new crypto policy priorities we haven't yet considered or haven't emerged. How do we tackle privacy? data permanence, IP, etc. on blockchains and in the metaverse? How do we treat liability and oversight in token-governed networks like DAOs? Coinbase proposed a dedicated regulator slash SRO combination in its recent policy proposals, and I think they articulated the broad strokes well. One, create a new framework around digital assets given their unique properties. Two, Assign a dedicated regulator to deal with the challenges of digital asset marketplaces. 3. Protect against fraud and market manipulation at these marketplaces. And 4. Promote interoperability and competition. If you haven't yet, it's a perfect time to sign up for Masari Pro. You can access our industry-leading research and pro data tools through your Masari Pro membership. GoPro for 15% off with the offer code theses underscore 2022 and start your free seven-day trial today. The key here was Coinbase's inclusion of interoperability, a stand to protect wallet-to-wallet transfers and ensure exit from exchanges remains painless. Brian Brooks also suggested Congress apply a non-discrimination principle to crypto as well. No preferential treatment for TradeFi versus DeFi. Something like the AW3C would present perhaps the only path forward that doesn't cede complete oversight of the crypto markets to the SEC or push crypto offshore. There will be regulation, and Treasury and FSOC seem comfortable leaning heavily on Gensler. A new agency would highlight the U.S.'s embrace of crypto as a new paradigm, the internet treatment, shepherd smart regulation, and help with tax guidance and compliance. Unfortunately, I think this has a less than 0.1% chance of coming to fruition, not with this gridlocked Congress and markets-hostile administration. Current regulatory leaders seem to have already carved up the pie for themselves. My sense is that the future of American crypto relies on a relentless legal assault on the SEC. 4.15 Local and Metaverse Battles I had big plans for this section. Truly, I did. Wyoming is doing great things and innovating like crazy on crypto banking structures and Dow governance rules. Mayors are starting to compete with each other to become crypto hubs. I like that NYC is showing a little fight and two of my other favorite cities, Austin and Miami, are already safe zones. I also truly believe that in a world where no unsettled physical land remains, we must turn our attention to virtual property rights. We should fight for an open metaverse. In the physical and virtual realm, we should be fighting battles at the decentralized edges. But I'm going to stop here for two reasons. One, I'm tired and the section is long enough. And two, I do not want to lose sight of my initial punchline. The fight is here. In America, and in D.C. in particular, and the stakes couldn't be higher. We either win and realize another golden era of the user-owned internet, or we lose and the future looks bleaker. States won't hide you from angry Uncle Sam. That's simply not how it works. We must win D.C. Section 4.16. There's nothing more punk than the battle for American crypto. To close this section, I'm including an excerpt from a recent thread from Punk6529. I'd encourage you to read all of Punk6529's top threads over the holidays. Between this report and Punk's missives, you're looking at a poor man's version of crypto federalist papers. In the thread, Punk states, there is no more natural home for crypto than the United States of America. There is no more natural strategic weapon for the United States of America than crypto. The USA has never gone wrong. Betting on freedom and things are no different this time. The USA has the largest economy and financial markets, reserve currency, strongest military, largest tech industry, largest media industry, and more free speech than most, and an unending consumer market. It also has a fundamental belief in freedom from the state and a healthy distrust of the infallibility of the state. Austin Tea Party, Constitution, Bill of Rights, and the system of governance is also quite decentralized. The USA is a federation something not fully understood outside of the USA with a massive number of states' rights. My view is very simple. The USA can handle open systems. Its strategic competitors can't. My view is the literal anti-Peter Thiel view. His view was that China was encouraging Bitcoin to reduce USD dominance. It was the most backwards thing I have heard in years. The USD can handle Bitcoin just fine. A closed system like the Yuan cannot. A different way to put it, I am much more optimistic than our political establishment. I believe the USA can lead the way to greater freedom, innovation, and decentralization, and that will help the United States and the world. If the USA leads this topic, the EU will follow. If the USA and the EU choose the path of freedom, we start to build systems that citizens of more closed systems to aspire to. This, to me, is the way. Okay, onward. Interested in commissioning research, Contact us for pricing today and join our Masari Hub as a contributor.